Like I literally had hundreds of thousands in credit card debt for me, my friends, my parents' house. And probably if I didn't pay the people on the streets, I would have got my legs chopped off. You just heard from Bobby Brannigan. As a sophomore in college, he started an online marketplace selling textbooks. This is how he went from over $250,000 in debt to an eight-figure exit. All aboard the MBIT podcast with Seamus Madan. I want to start this episode with your most recent post on LinkedIn. It starts with, I bootstrapped my first business out of my dorm room to $100 million in sales. Before we get into how you built that business, I think early context here is important. So can you take me back to your earlier years, which are fundamental to the person you are today um, back in Brooklyn, New York? Thanks, Seamus. I'm really excited. Uh, thanks for having me today, by the way, too. Um, so I guess to go way back for me, and what got me, like, drove me to be an entrepreneur, it started in my childhood. Um, I remember being a young kid. I think I was, I actually just asked my dad this. I called him to fact check. But um, around 11, 12 years old, I remember playing sports. And I wasn't very good at any of them. Like, couldn't see the ball in baseball. I was too small for football, too small for basketball. And I remember sitting on the curb, and I, and I thought to myself, I want to pick something that I can be good at. And at that point in my life, what was really important was to gain the respect of mostly my dad, my family. And at that point, I felt kind of crappy that I wasn't good at anything. So I sat down and thought, and I'm like, you know what? I think about all the sports. I thought, and I'm like, I'm going to play hockey. Hockey is a sport that I could be good at. At the point, at that point, I was very small for my age. I don't know, for like four foot tall and skinny little kid. So I'm like, this could be the good sport for me. So um, kind of my journey of like my ambition started with playing hockey and it, it really started in similar to this conversation of like, why did I pick hockey? And I picked hockey because for me, it was a thing that I had the greatest chance of being good at. And part of my goal was to be good at something and be successful at something. So, you know, for me, I started playing hockey at a young age and my aim was to play in the NHL. Um, I was surrounded by entrepreneurship along the way because my dad had a grocery store in Brooklyn that I grew up working at when I was eight years old, working in the grocery store, delivering groceries, stocking the shelves and like, you know, growing up working in the store. But hockey was my ambition. And I was, you know, I grew up playing in New York. I eventually moved and played hockey in Massachusetts and Canada and all different places. Um, but that was really like the big drive that I had. And entrepreneurship was just the thing on the side. Um, you know, as in growing up in Brooklyn, entrepreneurship is kind of second nature. Um, people, everybody's hustling something i know like i remember in high school or actually elementary school my dad told me that i used to come into the store in the morning when before we went to school and i'd get like two six packs of yoohoo uh, which is like a chocolate drink i don't know if they even have them anymore and i would sell them to kids in my class it was like a natural thing but like you grow up in new york city or in any urban area for the most part you know kids are entrepreneurs so i just did that i sold my yoohoos and i ended up buying like some ice cream or chocolates i wanted to eat those things instead um, but kind of started at a young age, you know, kind of selling products in school. As I got older, I remember being, I think, uh, 13 years old. I started my own hockey league. Um, so that was like my next little venture of like, you know, and, and what's similar to the other one, it was like doing something that I knew. I was playing hockey. I knew a lot of kids that wanted to play. So I started the league. Um, so kind of did that, but was really focused on playing hockey. 
um, went away to school to play hockey. And when I went away to school, I realized that I wasn't going to play in the NHL. It was like I ended up starting hockey too late. Um, 11 or 12 years old, I started playing. So I said, you know, what am I going to do with my life? And one of the things I reflected on at the time is I, I said, listen, I'm from New York City. I come from an entrepreneurial family. I could be pretty, I have a better chance of being successful in business. I remember in hockey, the people that grew up in Canada and the hockey families, you know, those people were more likely, those are the people that were the best because kind of in their genes from a young age and taught the tricks in the trade and, you know, they had networks and all of those things. So I decided that I wanted to get into business. Um, so that was kind of like my drive is I thought this, again, similar to hockey, that this is something that probably resonated would resonate with me more. And if I think about, you know, like what I wanted to do, because obviously when you're young, you're like, all right, well, what am I going to do? Great. You want to be in business. You want to make money. You want to be successful. Um, a lot of the things I thought about were based on the place that I grew up in. So what was true and where I grew up, I grew up in a unique place, Brooklyn, New York in the nineties. Um, and in Brooklyn, there were really like four different types of jobs that people had, if you want to call them jobs. But there was like typical blue collar job and my dad had a grocery store in Brooklyn. Um, and I saw that even though he owned it, to me, it was still a blue collar job. Um, I didn't think, I didn't see the difference between owning it and working in it. I guess by nature, I always thought of owning it because he owned his own store. But to me, that was like backbreaking work, like seven days a week, no vacations. You work so hard. And then the other type of job was like a white collar job where you get a job in the city. Like you go to Manhattan, you get a job working at like bank, consulting, accounting firm, whatever it might be. And I saw that as like death through boredom. Um, just going to a job, wearing a suit every day, sitting in a cubicle. And that wasn't really appealing to me. So the third type of a job that people had is in Brooklyn at the time, a lot of people were gangsters. And, you know, obviously that's not a great job because your risk is death. Like if you screw up, right? And, or jail. So that's not really an appealing thing, but the, the gangsters were very glamorous. You would see them around, driving fancy cars. Then the next uh, area, the fourth area that I saw was being a stockbroker. And in the late 90s, um, the stock market was booming. And these people from the neighborhood, and I saw them like people like me, people from the neighborhood, like they became stockbrokers. Months later, they're driving Ferraris and Lamborghinis and wearing Italian suits and like doing anything they wanted to do. So it got me, I was really intrigued by that when I saw it. And I said, the stock market thing is pretty interesting. And I remember being 15 years old working in my dad's store and a guy from down the street is like, I have a hot stock tip. It's called Brain Tech International. I still remember BNTI was a stock symbol. And then I ended up buying that stock. I'm like, I asked my father, I'm like, dad, can I buy this stock? I'm like, I have 500 bucks. I could buy a certain amount of shares. I ended up buying it. I ended up being a pump and dump scheme, the company, but the positive part about it is it actually got me in the game of investing in stocks at 15 years old. And from there, I was very curious about what's going on in the stock market. I had friends, a lot of them who were becoming stockbrokers, and there was people like in basements study, studying like rebuttal books and how they can kind of pitch people on the phone and everything. And I thought for myself, like that necessarily wasn't for me. Um, I wasn't like a slick talker, salesperson uh, kind of um uh, person. So I, I got more into like analyzing stocks. So while I was playing hockey, I was actually analyzing stocks. And that's what really got me into, you know, I guess 
starting a tech company. Before we get into how you actually built the TechSpeak business, I kind of want to go back. What were some of the, you think, key things that you learned when you were working for your dad as a little kid delivering groceries? What is something, some of the things that you observed and learned during that time? Well, it's kind of, it's kind of crazy, right? Like when you're that young and you learn things, you don't even know what you know. You think what you know is common sense because you're like, all right, like you can't think about like how somebody else would know the same thing. But essentially, you know, I learned so many things. And I remember in, in school, you know, going to economics class and like looking at different things. And initially when I would look at things, I'm like, this is really hard. Supply and demand, like these curves and like everything seems so complex. And then I just started relating it to business, you know, like simple scenario of like, you have one apple left and you want 10 people that wants it. The price goes up, price theory. You know, it's like, it's it's pretty simple, but certain things that when you're in business become second nature. So I think being in, in a business like my dad's where it was like very busy, like he had lines out the door all the time. You know, I learned so many things from, you know, operational processes and how to efficiently run a business. He had 20 employees and lines out the door, customer service, you know, how to treat customers, how to speak to customers, how to manage money, you know, how to price products. So I didn't understand at the time. I didn't know what I knew. I just knew that I understood business, I guess. I, I, I had a conf- very high level of confidence. And I think it related back to the point of like, like I said, in hockey, if you're a Canadian that grew up in a hockey family, like hockey is second nature and you don't know if it's nature or nurture that you know it. But it was similar to the way I thought about business of like, was born in business. My my father is, you know, entrepreneur. My grandfather was an entrepreneur. Um, but you know, many things I learned in the store, like like I mentioned. And we talked about half.com. Um, you mentioned you were trading stocks in high school. I don't know if you're open to sharing, but how much did you end up making doing that in high school? So in high school I didn't make money. I, I lost money actually. I lost like a thousand dollars when I was in high school. And but then my freshman year of college is when things started really kicking nicely. Okay, so let's go back uh, to your freshman year. You enter college. Um, what was the vibe you were getting on campus? What did you start to explore and how did that go? So I was really like focused on trading stocks. And, um, you know, I had my multi monitor set up in my room and I was trading. I was, I'd wake up at the beginning of the market, make sure I got to my desk 30 minutes before the market closed. And I was very focused on trading because I saw trading as like a great way to grow. I did very well in my freshman year. I turned like 500 bucks into $10,000 and not just trading stocks. I Sophomore year, I got into trading stock options, which everything accelerated substantially when I learned that. But uh, in addition to doing that, the other things that I did, I would immediately take the money and put it in my Scott Trade account. That's what I used to trade. They got, they got acquired since they're not around anymore, but I traded with Scott Trade. But um, some of the different things that I was doing is I was, I was promoting for nightclubs remember having my own guest list at various nightclubs. So that was a thing more in the summertime because I went away to school in upstate New York, but in New York City, I would promote for New York City nightclubs. Um, obviously, you know, got into buying and selling textbooks um, very early on in college. So that was like another big thing. Um, those are really the two prominent things. I forget, I forget what else I might've been like dabbling in, but those like for the most part, it was like buy and sell books, promoting and then put all the money in the stock market and trade, 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 trade. And that buying and selling books part is actually where you made uh, a good chunk of money. How did you uh, come across uh, the buying and selling books and why did you decide to create a business around it? 
Yeah, yeah. So I, this is kind of what I what you were mentioning, what I shared on LinkedIn. But it, it started in this moment where end of my freshman year, I went to the bookstore to sell my books, as most students do, unless they're renting them today. They didn't have rentals back then. Uh, maybe a line around the like outside of the uh, store, like re- like massive line. You go to sell your books, and they wouldn't buy half the books. So I asked the rep, I go, "What do you want me to do with these books?" She's like, "You could throw them in that pile over there." So I look at the pile. I'm like, "Wait a second, could I have the pile?" She's like, "Sure." So I had a friend who was in the uh, dining hall where the bookstore was, and I said, "Can you help me carry these books back to my dorm room?" We brought them back to my room, and within a week and a half, I sold them for like five thousand dollars on eBay. So that was kind of the starting moment of like, yeah, I was hustling, trying to figure out like where I could turn a dollar into two so I could put it in the stock market and turn it, you know, 10x it. And that was like, okay, cool. I'll take these books and I'll sell them online. And it worked. So, um, you know, from there, after I did that, that was at the end of the semester of my, of my freshman year. And then when I came back the next semester, I was like, okay, game time. Got to get my hands on a lot more books. You know, a lot of students wouldn't just throw away their books. You paid all this money. Some kids are like, who gives a shit? I'm just going to throw them away. They're not worth anything. Why am I going to carry this book around? So that's where the pile came from. Other people were like, no, I'm going to keep it. I might need it. Somebody else might want to buy it, whatever it might be. So I knew that a lot of these, I used to call them juicy textbooks, were sitting in people's dorm rooms. And if I could only buy those books from them, I knew how much they already sold for and I could calculate it pretty easily. So I started thinking about ways that I could buy those books. Very simple. And my first thought was like, oh, let me just put up posters around campus, like in the dorm rooms, like in the dorm room bathrooms. And I told the RAs and all over, I would post these posters, like, you know, A&F by 11 printout that I printed in like the college library. Um, And I posted them up and I said, hey, if you have books to sell, email me the ISBN numbers and I'll give you a price. If you like it, I'll pick them up and give you cash. Um, so that was kind of like the, the next move there in terms of like getting that cash flow, increasing the cash coming in so I could put more money in my stock tree. And how successful were those posters that actually bringing in customers and folks at your uh, college? Yeah. So I, I think it was like somewhere between like five and $800 a week in books I would buy. And I, I usually like double, triple, quadruple my money. Um, so it was pretty good. And in the beginning, obviously it was good because there was a lot of surplus of books, but it started diminishing because I, you know, a lot of the low hanging fruit, people would reach out. And then I had to figure out like other methods to get books. And then, you know, naturally what I did is I'm like, all right, I'm going to go knock on the doors. And obviously, you know, it's, some people are shy. I was a little bit shy about being the door to door salesman, but at the end of the day, I didn't give a shit. I'm like, I want to feed my trading account so I can grow, you know, how much money I had in my account. And my reason for this wasn't just because I wanted to make a lot of money and drive a fancy car. It was because I looked at like, you take your business classes and you're like, money is freedom. We live in a money society. So if I could build up money, I won't have to be forced to do something that's going to make me miserable. Right. I was like, that was kind of like my logic around it. So I'm going to build up my, the amount of money I have. So I was like hustling to build a foundation to avoid misery in the future of having to go take like this corporate job somewhere. So started hustling, knocking on doors. I had some other friends on my hockey team. I said, guys, you, you want to make some money? I could pay you guys. Come door to door with me. That accelerated things. And then we realized, wait, wh- why don't we go to other campuses? Because obviously the first run you do on the first day is better than the 10th run because there's a lot of people that want to sell their books. So 
we thought like, all right, let's go to campuses and maybe we go, we do like three or four runs and then we go to another campus. Um, but got guys from the hockey team. We went to other campuses. We knocked on doors, typically on Wednesday or Thursdays because people want to go to like the quarter draft nights and kids wanted money to go to the bars. So we realized that that's when we could buy books for the best prices when they everybody wanted to go out that night. But so that, that accelerated more. Gotcha. And you're using this money to fund your trading account, but little did you know that that this business would actually end up turning into one of the ways that uh, you could become financially free. How did that happen? How were you able to scale up these door-to-door, knocking on the door, asking people to sell their books into an $85 million exit? So basically what happened is that I was doing this hustling all you know school year long until end of my freshman year. During the summer of my freshman year, I was able to get an internship on the New York Stock Exchange. And it was like, believe it or not, it's like, it is action, but it's so boring. Like I was a runner and it gave me a lot of time to contemplate, you know, it just, it's mindless work. So I thought about what I wanted to do. And I thought what I, what I thought about is kind of a misplacement of inventory on the marketplaces online. And I, I got this big idea and I'm like, you know what? People are selling books online. You know, the books that I was selling but they're not placing them under the right product I need. They're not listing comments. People are suspicious back then. I'm like, what am I buying? Is it going to be the right book? Are the pages all torn out? It's like, is this going to be the right book? So I had this idea. I'm like, all right. Actually first started with, why don't I buy some of those books and have them shipped to me? And I did that like during the summer. I bought a bunch of them. I'm like, oh, I'm buying these for like three bucks. I'm selling them for like 20. And then I realized like, I don't know, one day like the light clicked and I was like, wait a second. Why do I even need them to have them send the book to me? Why don't I just list it online when I see a surplus of inventory available? And then when somebody buys it from me, I go buy it from the other person and have them ship it right to the customer. So I had I, I got had that idea right before I got back to school. And when I got to school, you know, I it, it all that's when it like it all clicked that I wanted to do it. And I have a good friend of mine named Nick. And the prior semester, he, you know, he got a he got a motorcycle accident. Actually, one of the guys on our team bought a motorcycle, and he ended up crashing it. He owned the kid a bunch of money, so I'm like, and you know, he was stressed about it, and I was stressed that he was stressed. So I still remember to this day, I, the idea clicked about doing this, and it was like, you know, ten o'clock at night, I run to his house because I was living on campus. He was off campus, and I'm like, Nick, wake up! I have the idea that's going to get you out of debt, and I told him about. It. He's like, this is great. But let's talk in the morning. I'm tired. So um, next day we 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 start. I, I guess it wasn't even next day. I was just so amped up that I just listed all the books that night. And then the next day, the inbox was flooded. We had a tremendous amount of orders. It was something like twenty thousand dollars in orders came in, essentially to buy books for like three or four and sell them for like twenty bucks or thirty bucks. Um, and I didn't have to even touch it. So for me, that was like this special moment. I call it like my holy shit moment of like, there is insane potential here that I had no idea existed. Like imagine if you, you know, you wanted to do something and you sold, you sold a few of them online, they sold in seconds. You'd be like, wow. And at the same time, when I was on campus, nobody was buying books online. And maybe they were a little further behind because it was like Western New York and people like in cities tend to pick up on trends faster. But like no one was buying books online and the books were like 80% cheaper. 
like the idea is just all started formulating. It's kind of weird. It's like sometimes your instincts know there's something before you can even calculate it at all. I just immediately knew. I'm like, I can build a marketplace, get people to sell. The prices are so low and I can market this and build a big business with no money. So it was like immediately clicked. And that's what got me to have the conviction to start a textbook company. And obviously from there, I had to like crystallize what the vision was and then get it launched. And you got that initial spike of $20,000 in sales relatively quickly. Where do you think it came from? It came from insane demand online of people that wanted those books. And the people that were selling, basically what had happened is that the other people that were selling the books correctly sold them immediately online because they were so cheap and students go back to school, 18 million college students go back to school within a four week period of time and inventory was zeroed and these people had books misplaced. I just repositioned them and they sold instantly. Um, so I think it was just really around placement. But what it told me is that in a market where nobody's buying books yet online and they and the prices are so low, there's already insane demand. So it gave me an insight to an area that I felt as though nobody else was paying attention to. Um, so that to me, it was like, imagine you were in like a secret club and they open the door and they're like, if you do this, this will be huge. And then you see it firsthand. Like you see, you know, it's almost like when you first use chat GPT, wow, this thing can do all these things. It can tell me all these things. It's like one of these, a lot of people, you know, had that holy shit moment and they started an AI company. So like, wow, I can use this, this uh, API. So you mentioned you wanted to create a marketplace out of this and start selling books and create that two-sided marketplace. You were actually the first company to create a reverse bid marketplace. What does that even mean? And how did you do 5X the company in a period of 18 months doing that? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, originally the concept was create an ask-based marketplace where people would ask for a certain price, they'd post a book and other people would buy it. Um, and that's part of the business that we grew, that we started with and we we built off of. Um, there was an interesting period of time for our company. And I feel like this is like, will resonate with a lot of founders like today, but the market changed like that. And two major things happened for us that changed the market. Um, and this was in... I think it was like 2008, 2009. Um, one is that there was a company that came along named Chegg who raised $200 million in venture capital money. I didn't raise any money, right? We were bootstrapping this whole thing. And Chegg came along and they did a couple of things. One, they really drove, I wouldn't say they initially invented, um, a guy named Colin Barcelo invented from Book Renner, invented the rental concept. Chegg copied it, in my opinion. But Chegg blew it up like crazy. So they changed the dynamic of the market. And in that, there's a lot of things that we got kind of sidelined in. The affiliates wanted to work with them. They paid more money. They, you know, bidding up search, all these things. So the business model changed. And on top of that, it was another thing is Google made an update to their search algorithm called the Panda update, where at the time we had worked with awesome SEO people. We were number one for everything. College textbooks, used textbooks, cheap textbooks, number one, number one. So like, what do you do when you don't have a lot of money? You got to do the things that are organic that you can, you know, really optimize the business with little cash. And that's what we had done. But um, those two aspects really turned our business upside down. So we're in this critical moment where 
we're like, uh oh, what are we going to do? These guys raise this money, they're spending money like crazy, and it, didn't, it wasn't even profitable. It didn't even to us seem logical the way they were spending their money. So we had to dig in and figure out what is special about us? What can we do that nobody else is doing that would, that where we can grow? And you got to remember, I, you know, I mentioned Chegg and they weren't even big. Amazon is the monster, still is the monster, right? Like, so like, we always dealing with like 800 pound gorilla Amazon. What are they going to do? How are we going to compete with them? But that was like a whole new curveball. It just rocked like the niche that we created. They were rocking our niche. Um, so we had to get innovative. So, I mean, in that, you know, in terms of how we started this bid side model, we looked at it and said, well, I don't know if we'll be able to get the cash to compete with Chegg, but there's something that we have that's very special. We have tens of thousands of booksellers selling their books on our website today. And we know a lot of the people who are buying books, online, you know, booksellers, textbook wholesalers, college bookstores, we know who pays the premium. So we said, what if we had a buyer lined up at the end of the semester and we could take a book that we had on our website that was for sale from one of our merchants and list a rental option? And how it would work is that when you rented it at that price, you would be just renting it. You're not you're not buying the book. You're only renting it. And you've got to return it at the end of the semester. But we already had a, a buyer lined up. And essentially, the way we phrase this is like a futures market for college. Tech. So it's kind of funny how things come back. But I was trading stock options in college, and I essentially created this futures contract concept, and it took off. Because at the end of the day, in the textbook industry... Everybody wanted and still wants used textbooks. Students rather have a used textbook. Booksellers want used textbooks. They're a scarcity because the cheaper, it's the same information, but cheaper for everyone, right? There's more money to be made than buying from a publisher and selling it from a publisher. So we had buyers that wanted to buy an unlimited amount of books. So we created this futures market and it took off. And that was that was really the key to it. And from there, we innovated on top of it, but that's... It was basically like we were backed into a corner and we had to look at ourselves and say, what is special about us? What is our unfair advantage in this current scenario? How do we position ourselves? Got all these sellers, got customers, just got to give them better prices. And that's all we did. And we put it together and it started in one way and we expanded it in many, many ways so that everyone could participate. And as it grew out, even Amazon was one of our buyers. Like we had, you know, all the biggest companies ended up having dozens and dozens of companies buying. So you mentioned Chegg, they raised hundreds of millions. You were bootstrapped. You were going up against them. Um, do you mind if I ask how much did you bootstrap the company with? That's a good question. Um, the amounts fluctuate because, you know, what we're doing is we're flipping textbooks along the way and generating profit. So, you know, we made millions in profit um, from I don't know, five, six, seven million in profit to fund the development of the marketplace. Um, but we also had to borrow money to do so. And, you know, we borrowed money in very unconventional ways. Um, started off, you know, using some stock trading money. Um, also used credit cards. I was able to amass, I think, $250,000 in credit card debt, which I kind of see as an accomplishment. Um, what we did, we actually had a person who still works with us today, like at Mercado. But she managed a, a baseball card book 
holder book that we had that had all credit cards in it. And initially I started with my own, you know, my own information, my own social security and everything. I was able to expand my, you know, seven credit cards, $100,000. And then other people in the company, I guess I built some trust with them, but they decided to let us do the same for them. And we had a book of like 30 or 40 credit cards that we had masked. So that was like one method. Uh, the second method, I guess, stocks and credit cards. I My father let me take out a home equity lot in his house. Um, also, you know, borrowed money from people, I'll call it on the streets of Brooklyn. Um, so we were pretty extreme. In term, I, was, I, I will say I was a very, very confident student. I didn't think anything could stop me. So I took major risks. And, you know, you look at people today that start business businesses with no skin in the game besides their time. Like I literally had hundreds of thousands in credit card debt for me, my friends, my parents' house. And probably if I didn't pay the people on the streets, I would have got my legs chopped off. So this was a high degree of risk. Um, and it made building the company very stressful. And when you think about these moments of like, check coming along, Panda update. And what I didn't mention is we also had a moment where we got sued by the four biggest publishers in the United States. Um, that almost took our company under. And um, these moments become very scary when, you know, hey, it's the same for founders today. It's like, maybe it's all you got. Like everything you have is this company. But then imagine on top of everything you have, you have all these other risks you've taken to borrow the money. So that's kind of, you know, like how we funded it. And yeah, we did generate millions of profit from one business to build the other business. But the stress was... Not in that money. The stress was in the money that we owed. When you were a quarter million in credit card debt, your father took that home equity loan on the house, and then you were also getting sued by four major publishers. How did you get out of that? So first of all, extremely stressful. Um, we were high on life on top of the world. We, the company was doubling, tripling every year. Boom, boom. Imagine like building two companies concurrently, one's profiting, building the marketplace, your marketplace keeps growing. And then you get a letter in the mail and you're like, you can't sell books. Like, interesting. Uh, what do you do as a cocky college student? You rip it up, say, screw you. Eventually they kept coming back. Um, they came back and, you know, they wanted $8 million dollars how the hell am I going to get $8 million? So, you know, we didn't have much money. We, you know, we're all of our money went to grow in the company. Um, so we hired my college law professor and worked with him. We were dealing with a firm Covington and Burling that represented the four biggest publishers. They actually all teamed up and hired and retained Covington and Burling to sue us, um, together. Um, we were in litigation with them for like a year. And again, it was the most stressful moment of my life. And I remember driving on the highway in Buffalo, like I-90. And I remember blacking out while I was driving. I might have been going 90 miles an hour. And I blacked out, woke up on the side of the highway. And I was like, what the hell is this? Like, you know, at that point, I'm a kid who grew up in Brooklyn. I played hockey. Like I wasn't, you know, I didn't really think about the stress. I'm like, let's let's plow through it. You'll figure it out. But I had blacked out from stress. I'm like, all right, this is a problem. My body can't turn off on me. So I had this interesting idea. I'm like, all right, got to end this. 
So I ended up calling the person involved, I think it was from one of the publishers who was the lead from the publishers. And I said, you know, listen, I don't know what you think we, we're doing, but we have no money. We can't pay you. You know, we don't have money buried somewhere. Like we're not like we're a bunch of students building a company. And I say it calmly now, but when I was calling him, I was probably like stressed out and he's probably like, this guy's going to have a heart attack or something. So, um, the next day the, they call us back and they said, all right, we want to settle. Okay. And they're like, we want to settle for $200,000 and got off the call, talked to our lawyer. And I'm like, I don't know how we can do this. Like how I don't, why am I going to, now I got to get $200,000. Like we're trying to build a company. We don't have money, just 200 grand laying around. And he's like, well, I think they'll give you a payment plan. And then all of a sudden he had this light bulb moment. And he said, I know somebody who specializes in uh, getting money from insurance companies to pay these kind of things. So he's like, but let's first write them a letter. Let's write the insurance company a letter, see if they'll pay for the lawsuit, they'll pay for all the legal fees and everything. We write them a letter, they say no. So um, that I remember, I still remember the guy's name, uh, Galbo. I forget the first name, but Galbo, I love, love uh, Mr. Galbo, but he was a lawyer in Buffalo. We retained him. He wrote one letter. It was like three grand, five grand, something like that. $300,000 check from, you know, to pay for the settlement, to pay for all the legal fees. Um, so it was like, holy crap. Like it was like the greatest moment ever. Um, but I will say at the moment I was still shattered. Imagine building something for five years. Imagine at that point we had, I think $750,000 in debt from all the different groups of people that I mentioned, you know, how stressful that is knowing that at any moment, you know, all the blood, sweat, and tears, four big players teaming up could just step on you. It's really demoralizing. So that was um, a very stressful time for me. I was ended up being depressed for a period of time, which obviously I bounced back out of, but it taught me a lot about what myself, you know, about myself, uh, about, you know, how to position these things better. It's always uh, ideal to settle when one can rather than fighting. Um, but it was a great re-experience and lesson learned. Is that when you decide to consider selling the company or was that later down the road? No, no, no. So I actually, at that point, it was, you know, a lot of stress. I, I decided to take some time off. And what I told myself is that, what would I do if I sold the company today? And, you know, at the point I was, you know, in my 20s and I went straight through, like, you know, from high school, playing hockey, college, starting a business. I didn't take any time off. I'm like, you know what I would do? I would backpack Europe. So a few months later, I or maybe a month later, I put um, one person, uh, my friend Scott, in charge of the textbook, uh, the marketplace, and Chris in charge of the physical textbook company, and I backpacked Euro Europe for six months, and uh, and then and then came back, and then I was ready to go again. But I I needed that time to limb a little, because you know when you're when you have that level of risk. And you have a desire to win no matter what, you don't stop working. And I didn't have a life. So literally, like you could ask any of the people involved. I was 3 a.m. on a Saturday, I was working. Like I, I might have still been in the office at 3 a.m. on a Saturday where, you know, so it's like everybody's out partying. So I was like, and I did that throughout my 20s. So that was like, I took a little bit of time off, then I came back. And when you came back, what were some of the first things that you did? So you're like, hey, we want to continue growing this. What was that 
what was those steps like? So actually, the, when we came back, like two weeks later, we had another big surprise where they changed the tax law in New York State. Um, they call it the Amazon tax. So, um, it's an affiliate tax nexus law where if you were residing in that state, you gave other merchants tax nexus in your state. So they had to then pay sales tax in your state. So long story short, they passed this law and our biggest merchants left like immediately. And talking about like big, big sellers, big wholesalers. So we said, all right, we got to move. So it happened pretty quickly. Um, so within two weeks, we decided to move the company to San Diego. And we just jumped in our cars and drove from Buffalo to San Diego and kind of got restarted. How did you get those merchants on uh, initially? I know, for example, for me, age has been somewhat an advantage in some ways, but a disadvantage in others. Um, for example, when pitching guests to come on this show, being an 18-year-old is pretty unique, and oftentimes they want to share their story, just like you, with the next generation of founders and investors. But yep. in sales, sometimes people will look at me and just be like, what do you know about anything? Like, you're 18, you graduated from high school, or in this case, you're, you're just a college student. How could you possibly help our business or help us grow? I mean, I guess this is true for any sales job, but you really have to know your shit better than anyone else. Um, so when you were running a company and pitching to other businesses as a college student, was that a hurdle you had to climb or was it not really an issue? Well, you know, I didn't, didn't have a lot of mentorship and that's, I think one of my biggest regrets that I will recommend people find mentors, but I didn't really think about like, you know, that aspect. There were certain things that I shied away from. Like, you know, at that point we were kind of like the renegades because the campus bookstores hated us because they were like, they're. You know, we were online business was eating their lunch and they saw it coming. So like that we naturally like they didn't even want to talk to us. Um, so there were certain things that we did that worked really well, like similar to you, like, all right, you got to use what you have to your advantage. And one of the things I had realized later on, and it's funny, like some um, bookseller friends told me this later, is that we had a student to student marketing program. And obviously we were students. We had an advantage there. We know how to speak to students. I, we ended up hiring 10,000 college students through our system where they would sign up and then they would get, they would have the ability to get a promo that they would give out to students for like 5% off and then they would get 5% commission. And we built out the student marketing program and that didn't help. It helped a little bit, but what happened, what happened to help in a way that I didn't think it would is at the time there was this thing where, you know, nightclubs were like posting pictures online of like oh like after the club you could see the pictures of who was there and everything i remember there's a place in new york city called junebug and i'm like we should do that we should take pictures of us promoting on the different campuses and track students like to get people to want to be in the pictures that's the way we thought about it but what ended up happening is the booksellers saw the pictures and they're like wow these guys are everywhere they're on all these campuses we, we you know like we're older. We can't get on the campuses. We can't get in the dorm buildings and all this stuff. And we ended up actually sponsoring the hockey team in Fredonia, where I went to school. We sponsored them on spring break. And we're like, all right, we're going to send you guys to spring break. But we get you all of you guys for a whole day in Panama City to wear our stuff and promote. And those pictures we put on the website, and it's almost like half the people in the textbook industry looked at the pictures. Uh, you can probably imagine why. But... Um, those pictures got merchants to think this seems like it might be the student hub 
And that it created the perception and we got some traffic from it, but it's not really what drove the traffic. It created the perception of the traffic that could be there. And I think that's what got us our initial merchants. Uh, it's funny because I posted on LinkedIn and I saw a lot of people who liked the post and a lot of people were those initial merchants that gave me the feedback. So it's like kind of cool, like seeing the people who were the early ones that got on board. But it's like one of those things, you know, similar to what you have is like you get a few people that gets you another name. And then from there, you'll get a high, you know, more well-known name and a more well-known name it was the same for us. It's like building it out. Like, so you get a few on board and then you get to the other people that know those people. So, but it was kind of like step-by-step step in that sense. And how did you go from those few people and few customers and few million in sales to then that $85 million exit? How did you go from to there? I will say one of the greatest moments for us was when we built the right product that people wanted. And when we built what they wanted, they bang, were banging our doors down to get it. And when we created that bid marketplace, and it, it was interesting because it was a moment where like, all right, we got to figure out what to do. And what I ended up doing is for the first time ever in the company, it's kind of crazy. I started talking to the customer and our customer was the merchant. And I remember like one of the most memorable, and I'm sure he'll remember it too, a guy named James Barnes flew out to Little Rock, Arkansas and had a steak dinner with James Barnes and his whole team. is like 10 of them. I asked them what would help them grow their business? What could I do to help them grow their business? They said, help us buy more books. We don't care about selling books. We sell with you because you are you de-risk us from depending on Amazon because Amazon was pretty ruthless. They could suspend you at any point in time and all your whole business is paused. So they said, well, you de-risk us. But if you could help us buy books, we'll buy an unlimited amount. So I'm like, all right. I immediately had the idea. I said, all right, well, would you want to bid on them? If you could bid on them, would, would you be okay with getting them in four months? And would you be able to give us a price four months in advance that we could power rentals with? I'm like, that seems good. Let's do it. So it was it was kind of like talking to a customer, you know, determining what they really wanted. And then when we built it, I almost call it like our PayPal moment because you always hear about, you know, Reed Hoffman talking about like taking the phone off the hook and like things are burning in the office. That was our moment where it's like, oh my God, for like seven years, I'm like begging people to get in the marketplace. And now they're coming up from like texting me, calling me, LinkedIn messaging me. Like, can I be a part of this bid opportunity? So I was like, that's what grew the company. It was purely innovation and asking the customer what they wanted. But obviously it's a little harder to do when you don't have something, but we had millions of customers coming to our website already. So like, can you just give them an option, you know, a rental option and make it cheaper? We were plugged into all the price comparison. So as soon as we dropped price, boom, sales and instantly flew. And what was the story to when you decided to sell the business? How did that go? And what were the conversations going on around your team and, and the table at that time? Yeah. So good. Another good story. Um, my first advisor and still an advisor today, is a guy named Nielsen Curia from San Diego. And I remember being in the business and all these things were happening. All these things were changing. And, you know, obviously our sales were dropping when Che came along and the Panda update happened and all these things. And he was like, listen, you know, you've been in this for almost a decade. We're always paranoid. Back then we were like, digital textbooks can come at any moment. 
like there were digital textbook companies starting here and there. The, the founder of one of the founders of Jag started a digital textbook company and it raised a bunch of money, ended up being a flop. But it was like this big looming scare. And at that point, you know, I had everything in the company. I had borrowing money. I wasn't borrowing from the scary people in Brooklyn anymore, but I still had a home equity loan at my parents' house and credit card debt and like all these things. Um, and it was like a hundred, five hundred percent of my money was in the company, right? Like everything. So, and digital textbooks were looming. So we're like, all right, what do we do? Um, so we, we, we started searching. Um, we hired a banker. We talked to a bunch of people. Um, and we found like unconventional opportunity. Like our, our initial idea was obviously you think like people are, who aren't selling books, people don't want to sell more books. We're a little, you know, we're a little cautious in talking to people that could try to copy what we do because we didn't realize the level of um, of a moat that we built. We had like tens of thousands of booksellers, which is actually a really strong moat, like having that network effect that we built. Um, but we're still fearful around not having enough of a moat. Um, but we ended up finding a company in Boston that was kind of like the kayak for student loans. And the founder of that company, CEO, had a vision. And he, I forget what he called, he called it like um, the swirl, where it was, it was like, we will lend them money, we will give them a credit card, we will give them rewards, we will sell them textbooks. It was like creating value for the student audience. And um, we ended up getting acquired by them, and they eventually got acquired by Lending Tree. But um, it ended up being a great, great partnership. Um, because they had been in student loans for a long time and they had other ways of getting traffic and they had millions of customers too. Um, so that's end how we ended up getting acquired by the lending tree or the kayak of, of student loans. How did it feel when you sold for tens of millions of dollars? It felt amazing. Um, and I, I will say it wasn't like during the way it wasn't totally, it wasn't, we weren't certain that it was going to happen. Like, cause we had a, like, you know, reach certain milestones to hit it. And then the company that acquired us had to raise money to pay us. It was like real, it was stressful. But let me tell you, when that wire hit my account, I remember just like uh, pumping in my headphones. I'm walking around in like Boston because the company was in Boston. Um, where was that? By the post office in Boston. I remember blasting like it was all a dream, Biggie Smalls on my headphones and just walking like I could have been floating. Like it was like, holy shit, we did it. Like we almost died so many moments and like being able to like pull this off was like, it, it was a feeling, I, 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 it's hard to replicate, but I will say that it's a feeling you get and weeks later, you, it's kind of bounces back and you kind of feel normal again. But <laughs> in that moment, it's like the crazy high of seeing all that money wired to your checking account. And you're like, what? And before we wrap up this show, I'd like to close it with a couple of traditional questions. One of which is, uh, if you could go back and call your 18 year old self and give him one piece of advice, would you call? And if so, what would you say? Definitely would call him. <laughs> would want to optimize for that. And I think the advice might sound simple for most people, but like a lot of people say, you gotta do it. Got to get a mentor. 
Um, and and I learned this actually from another piece from my brother, who was a very successful hockey player. You got to go where they want you. You got to go where they believe in you, right? And you got to find a mentor that believes in you. Don't go chasing some mentor that doesn't believe in you. Because I got to say, like mostly, sometimes you can like win people over. Usually love at first sight with a mentor. They kind of like who you are and where you grew up and what you've done and who you are, or they don't. So, you know, I'm not saying you're going to just magically find that person immediately, but search for them. Talk to a few people. And there's probably like, yeah, try to find like somebody who went to your same high school or your same college, or, you know, you're in Greek life. They were in the same fraternity sorority or you know, I'll play the same hockey team, whatever it might be, or, you know, somebody had similar experience, but you would be surprised. Like, I love mentoring people. You know how much enjoyment I get out of seeing other people not have repeated the same mistakes as me? It's like, it's outrageously valuable. So I would say like, find that mentor. It took me like, a, like, I don't know. It took me almost like seven or eight years to find my first mentor. When you find the person that you think this could be the person, like prove yourself to that. Say, hey, do you mind being on my weekly updates? You know, my monthly updates, whatever. Oh, of course they're going to want to. And then as they see you're consistent and you're serious, because a lot of people, most people are full of shit. They're not serious. So show that you're serious. Whether, you know, your initial updates, you might be kind of, you know, thinking that's not much and you, you might not be confident and like, all right, this person going to be disappointed in me. No, it's growth. It's listening. People give you advice and you listen and you adjust and you grow. People want people that grow. So I'd say like, get them on your updates. Don't be annoying. Be persistent. Show growth. And then the people that really believe in you, like lean in with them. I think that's really valuable advice. And I think one thing that I'd add is uh, try to find a mentor uh, who's either in your field or has accomplished something similar to what you want to accomplish, because I think you'll find that you can learn a, a lot of insights uh, from there. But Bobby, thank you very much for taking the time to join the show. I greatly appreciate it. Um, we'll have a link posted to Mercado, your car business, uh, and your LinkedIn in the episode description down below for anyone who wants to reach out, connect ask any questions. Um, but thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's a lot of fun. If you enjoyed this episode, I have one favor to ask you and it's the only favor I'll ever ask from you. If you could subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening to this on, I'd greatly appreciate it. And if you could share it with a friend who might enjoy it too. Thank you very much. And I'll see you in the next one.